Welcome to the Renew Theology Podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Bethany. We're two millennial women who enjoy discussing God's Word and how it applies to our lives. We believe in seeking to be rooted and established in the Word and allowing its truth to penetrate every area of our lives. Welcome back to another episode of Renew Theology. Hey, I'm Bethany, and I'm here with Emily, and tonight we are talking about a story in Genesis that you are probably very familiar with. Yeah, we're going to be talking about the story that is recorded in Genesis chapter 22. It's the sacrifice of Isaac. So it's the story when God tells Abraham to go sacrifice his son, and he's obedient. Um, So we have a lot to say about this, but we kind of want to jog your memory. So we're going to actually read the passage. It's not that long. Um, So we're going to go ahead and read it and then start into the study. Emily, do you want to read the first six verses? Sure. And I will just say too, before we start, that this is probably a good episode to have your Bible open if you're able to do that, um, since we are going to be looking, we're going to be taking a detailed look at this. Yes, we are. Um, Most of my notes are actually in my Bible for this episode and it is covered and highlighted and it's pretty crazy looking and it's helpful so try it all right so i'm going to read genesis chapter 22 verses 1 to 6 and i'm reading from the esv version after these things god tested abraham and said to him abraham and he said here i am he said take your son your only son isaac whom you love And go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father. And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, Here I am. Then he said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. 
Abraham went back to his young men, and they got up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham settled in Beersheba. So, um, this is a story that's pretty common knowing growing up. Um, I don't, like, you just learn it in Sunday school, and you understand it. Um, but when I started thinking, what does this story, like, what do I feel when I, or think when I'm reading this story? It's kind of scary. Like, it, it, it almost makes me fearful of God. Like, like, God would ask me to do that, to go kill a child, which I don't have currently. Um, like, I, I don't, I don't like that thought. Yeah, I think growing up, I really didn't know what to think about this story. Like, it's something I knew, and I, I never, like, questioned God. Like, I was never like, oh, I can't believe God would do this. He must be not a good God. Like, I, the fact that God is good trumped my confusion. So, even though I was confused about this story and would question it, it was still like, yeah, but I know God is good and that he is sovereign. I guess I just always viewed it as, like, a test of Abraham, and it was confusing to me. And it's like, I don't understand why God would test Abraham in this way, but he was just testing Abraham. Yeah. It it might just be because I grew up in the church and I've kind of already known the story, but I'm trying to read it with fresh eyes. And it's, it's really intense. And it's kind of shocking when you think about it, that God would ask one of his followers, one of his servants to kill their child. Like, that's pretty crazy. It's bordering on, like, awful. Well, especially because... Later on in the Bible, in Leviticus, God clearly and strictly forbids child sacrifice. Yeah. When I think about it in terms of talking to people who are unbelievers, I get even more uncomfortable. Like, it's it's off-putting. It's hard to swallow. It, it's hard to explain. Like, you kind of want to hide it. Like, I almost want to, like, give people, like, a, a preface. Like, I know this is a bit of an intense story, just kind of like God is good, just go with it. Like I'm trying to come at it with a fresh perspective and it's it's hard. I know some people who this is a stumbling block for them, not not particularly to their faith, but maybe to their understanding and trust of God. Um, in fact, for me, I maybe went the other way as you. Like I'm almost like doubting God's goodness if I just like, if I take it at face value and don't dig any deeper. In fact, I think when you grow up with with Bible stories, it like the point seems to be in the knowing of the story rather than the analyzing of the story. If that makes sense, like it's not till the recently that I've really dug into the the Bible stories that I grew up with and like actually reading each word as if it's meaningful and and putting it together and trying to like put myself in the place of these Bible characters or whatever. Like it's just recently I've started to do that. It seems like as a child, the point is knowing the story and being able to retell the story. And, oh yes, I've read that part of the Bible. Oh yes, I can tell that story. It's like almost that's the qualification for a good Christian. I think it's kind of like how you grew up your whole life, like hearing the story of Jonah. Um, And, but they stop before the whole, like Jonah is angry at God part. Well, I mean, Jonah's angry at God several times, but they stop right before, like, the destruction of Nineveh, right? So most, like, children's Bibles or, like, Veggie Tales or whatever. Actually, Veggie Tales didn't do this. No, they did a really good job with this. But a lot of children's books or children's Bibles, they will tell up until the point where Jonah goes and preaches to Nineveh. And then it's like, see, he did what God told him to do. Yay for Jonah. Moving on. And 
but then like when you're older you realize oh wait there is way more to the story than that you know and and it's actually like okay this isn't just about this miraculous like guy living in the belly of a fish for three days there's actually several nuances and a much deeper more profound lesson to be learned in this story yeah like putting yourself in the place of jonah like it's pretty crazy there's so much in there that's way more than i ever thought and i'm still digging into it um here's another example the story of noah and the ark in a, in a kid's story when you're telling that you never talk about the thousands of people who drown like these people are dying and you don't, we don't talk about that anyway so those are my my initial reactions when when reading this and it's it's almost something I try to forget like I know about it and I'm like I've kind of like come to terms with it but I don't understand it and I don't particularly like it So this is a pretty long and in-depth passage when you really start digging into it, and we don't really have time for that. So um, I'm going to start picking out words and phrases, um, and I want you to think, does this remind you of anybody that you know? Okay, so we're going to start in verse 2. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. I have a question. Was Isaac Abraham's only son? Huh, why does this passage say that? What are some other times that you can think of of the phrase my one and only son being used? Or your one and only son? I'm thinking John 3.16. Something that stands out to me is that Abraham is told to offer him. Like this is clearly like very sacrificial language. Like he's going to make a sacrifice and he it's Isaac that he's going to be sacrificing his only son. I think that goes hand in hand with the only son Um, concept in this passage yeah and i mean if you go to like what the burnt offering is it had to be an unblemished male which i don't know for sure if isaac was totally unblemished but they seem to be familiar with the concept of animal sacrifice like sacrificing animals to god Um, and they seem to be familiar with the concept of a burnt offering because abraham doesn't say um sure god i'll do that no problem can you just fill me in on what exactly that is Although the Levitical law detailing the requirements of for burnt offerings wasn't given until much later when Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt, it seems like that language is still being used. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. Um, now, it's interesting to note here, when I think of this story, I think of like a seven-year-old Isaac. But if you look at the language later on, the phrase more refers to like a late teenager, early 20s, like a young adult, maybe like verging on adulthood. Um, in verse four, it says that Abraham um, lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar on the third day. And this parallels very closely to uh, Jesus being raised from the dead on the third day. Yeah, cat's out of the bag. It's Jesus, guys. Um, so the interesting thing about this is that from the moment Abraham set out on that trip, his intention was to offer his son, like to slit his son's throat and offer him as a burnt offering. So it's almost as if like Isaac was as good as dead for those three days, which parallels someone else we know who was dead for three days. But 
at the same time, Abraham is sure that God is going to raise Isaac from the dead. Yeah, this is a really interesting thing. Like, he strongly believes he's going to receive Isaac back from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did. Yeah. And this was on the third day, right? Like, he receives Isaac back from the dead the same day, like, on the third day. Like, yeah. when, when Abraham lifts up his eyes and sees the place, that's the third day, and that's the same day he receives Isaac back. So, you're right, for those three days, he considered Isaac dead, pretty much. Yeah. But then on that third day, he receives Isaac back from death. Um, Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So, like, the idea is that Abraham was like, okay, God said that my offspring's coming through Isaac. Isaac does not have children. And God's asking me to kill Isaac. Therefore, God must plan on raising Isaac from the dead. Like, that amount of trust is crazy to me. I remember when we were memorizing Hebrews for Bible quizzing, and I got to this verse because I was memorizing Hebrews 11, and I was like, what? This is crazy. Like, I had no idea. Um, that that was what Abraham thought. Like for some reason, I had just never read Hebrews in that way, right? Never like I never caught it when I was reading through. But I like I didn't make sense until that very point when I read the verse. It's really cool. Um, so it like he believed this, and that's what made the whole thing possible. Like that amount of faith. And the next part is where it says. Abraham says, "The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you." So that's where like, clearly Abraham believes that his Isaac will be coming back with him. I think it's also important to point out that Abraham doesn't say, we're going to go over there and make a sacrifice and come back. He says, we're going to go over there to worship. It seems as though Abraham considers this sacrifice to be an act of worship. And I think that's really significant. I think that we can learn something from that where when we worship God, we are surrendering our concerns our worries, our desires, and we're saying, Lord, like, I choose to worship you, and this is about you, and my life is about you, and to me, that's very, very powerful and significant to consider worship to be an act of sacrifice. So, verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and I'd like to point out here that the wood is going to be used in Abraham's mind, to burn his son's body after he kills him. Like, Isaac is carrying the wood that will burn his body. Now, the, Jesus, if you read it carefully, Jesus also carried his own cross up this exact same mountain thousands of years later to his own death willingly. Like, Isaac knows that he's he's obeying his father. He, I don't think he knows the extent at this moment, that question doesn't come till he's tied up on top of the altar. I would have questioned it way before that. <laughs> um, but like, he's like, yeah, sure, Father, like, I'll help you. Like, what what can I do? And he's willingly doing this thing. And it's such a picture of Christ. I think, too, like, how old was Abraham when he had Isaac? I think like 100. Okay, so if you add like, say, 20 years to that. Yeah. 
I'm pretty sure Isaac could have like taken his father if he wanted to. Yeah, like, I'm he, thinking so too. <laughs> like he had just been like, no, I'm not doing this. And like Abraham couldn't have made him. Like I think that when you really like take the time to picture this in your mind, it becomes very, very evident that Isaac was going willingly. Yeah. Right. To his death. Yeah. And that's what Jesus did for us. And it's interesting too, in, in this day and age, like obedience towards authority figures is almost seen as a weakness. Um, whereas back then, like you obeyed those in authority over you, you served them, you respected them. Like you were there for, to listen and to their end for every whim. And I think we've lost a little bit of that. Um, not that it's not, not that it's bad to question authority, just in this case, like this is an all out obedience. So in the next verse, it says, in his hand, he took the fire and the sacrificial knife. So the fire is for the burnt offering. The sacrificial knife, of course, is to um, kill Isaac. These are pretty, pretty carefully chosen words and implements because fire is also is like a picture of judgment in the Bible. Um, we talk about like the fires of hell um, or, or just anything like the purification mode of it and then the knife equals death pretty simple i think in verse seven isaac starts to um wonder what is going on (laughs) um so he says verse seven says and isaac said to his father abraham my father and he said here i am my son he said behold the fire and the wood but where is the lamb for the burnt offering Um, And then in verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. I find this really interesting how Abraham's not like you are. He's very, like, he's trusting that God is going to provide. And I think it's really interesting that he says, like, God is going to provide a lamb. Of course, this directly correlates with how Jesus is spoken about in the New Testament, right? Where he's spoken of as the lamb of God. And so to me, that's very significant. I think at that point, Jesus is the Lamb of God and the Ram is not. And I think it's to kind of break up the picture a little bit to show that they're still waiting. At that point, they were still waiting for the Lamb. So at this point, they get there, they build the altar. Um, Abraham binds his son Isaac. Again, that's enormous restraint. Isaac doesn't, it doesn't say that Isaac said anything. Um, which reminds me of Jesus is like like silent, like a lamb led to the slaughter is silent, doesn't speak a word. And then Abraham gets ready to do it, and God's an angel, God, because um, it is Jesus, calls out and says, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. So we get little mixed phrases here the angel referring to himself as god and god as god so first and third person um, which is neat because jesus is part of the trinity and that's how they talk about each other sort of neat and so and when we come to this point you kind of breathe a collective sigh of relief like like they're not gonna do it like it's not gonna happen you come to the climax and i think it's important here to point out that if you had been upset of in about the story up till this point um you can also take a deep sigh of relief because no one can ever use this to say that god 
condoned or asked for human sacrifice. Like if someone uses a story to be like, okay, but blah, 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 you'd be like, yeah, point out one time in the Bible, a human was actually sacrificed by the command of God and they won't be able to because it doesn't happen. So you can put that, that fear or doubt to rest very easily. So then they um, get a ram that is found in the thicket and they burn the ram instead. And so Abraham, probably extremely like thankful and rejoicing, names the place the Lord will provide. So that today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. So this is a future tense. This is what gives the, the passage a bit of a prophetic idea. And it's so Moses is actually the one who's writing Genesis. And he's saying that the mount is still called by the name and it is still used as a reminder of the promise that God will provide. Now, I think it's like a double-edged sword, like just a general belief and trust that God will provide, fill in the blank, what you need, like whatever you need. But also it's like a future God will provide at some point the thing that you ultimately need. Yeah, I think it's a very clear picture about how we cannot ever make a sacrifice ourselves. We can never do anything or be anything to make atonement for ourselves, right? Like, even though God has given us different pictures of that sacrifice in the Old Testament, and like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, the prophecy about Jesus' crucifixion in Psalm 22, there are different places in the Old Testament that point to this that point to Jesus' sacrifice, but that's all they do. They point to Jesus. They are not um, a replacement for Jesus. There's nothing we can ever do. It's all just pointing towards what the Lord already did for us on the cross. At this point, we are looking at a parallel here between Isaac and the ram, and it is substitutionary atonement. So the ram is sacrificed instead of Isaac. So you can read the rest of it, and there's the promises there by from the angel of the Lord. But looking at it big picture, in this case, God has completely painted a picture of what the crucifixion at some point will look like. The son who is um, going to be judged in a, in a sense by the father, who is offering himself up willingly as a sacrifice in, in a way of worship, and who is like God has provided this and it's going to be a sacrificial atonement. Like this is Jesus, like this whole thing, the reason why it has that shock value and like not so sure, like God's trying to point it out. Like, don't you see like the son carries his own wood up the hill and the son doesn't like obeys and submits. And then that's like, it's incredible. The The thing that probably hits me most is the phrase that, what God did not ask Abraham to complete to kill his only son, God then did. Like God did it. He, he like Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sins and to die the death we should have died. Um, I'm going to read John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. It, it, it kind of blows you over again, the fact that God took a lot of the main components and put it in a story way, way back when. And we've been reading it for thousands upon thousands of years. And it's been there all my life, but I never saw. 
Like that's the reason this is here. I don't have to be mad at God for asking Abraham to kill his son because he never had him go through with it. It was all to show how God himself was going to do this thing that he didn't like he didn't have Abraham go through with. It's beautiful. So I think as a as a final thought here, when you read this passage or when you think about it, there's a reason why it's kind of shocking. There's a reason why it makes you pay attention. There's a reason why you have that eh, not so sure about it feel. It's because it's meant to draw your attention because it's a picture of Christ. Like this is a prophecy and a typology of Christ. That's why. That's the big deal about it. So we have decided to institute a fun little segment at the end of our podcast and so this week we're asking the question well two questions um so the first question is what are the last three emojis that you used that are not a plain smiley face because plain smiley faces are boring well i that's like an emoji i use a lot i think i know but it's just to tell people you're not mad at them i'm gonna open up my text messages and i'm gonna look at my last most recently used emojis that are not plain smiley faces these are really boring emojis Okay, the first one is the laughing, crying face. That's my most recently used, apparently. My second most recently used is the thumbs up. And my third most recently used is like the smile with the closed eyes and all the teeth showing. Oh, like the look at my bright white teeth. Yeah. Or like when somebody's mad at you and you just like smile disarmingly at them. Oh, <laughs> like, like me because I'm cute. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the last three I've used on my phone are a like the straight mouth and this like the slint slinty eyes like the i am so not pleased right now face um the next one is the tears are welling up in your eyes and you're about to cry face and then the the most recent one is the i'm so cool i'm wearing shades smiley face ah yes the classic number eight and then closed bracket it's very frustrating when you're trying to type an eight and then a closed bracket and it keeps converting it to that emoji Okay, so, and then what are your, I'm going to try and guess your top three favorite emojis. And then you're going to tell me if I'm right. I think you like the simple little smiley face, like the, I'm a cute little penguin type smiley face, where you have that like little tiny smile. Penguin? That's just a normal smiley face. I don't think so. I think it's like a, like a cute, cute one. Maybe it is a normal one. I don't know. I think it's the normal one. And maybe, can I see your phone? You have an Android. Oh, yeah, on my phone, it just shows up as a normal smile. Yeah, see, see, mine, I keep thinking of you like like a little happy tiny grin. Anyway, um, there's that one. And then the the smiley teeth, I'm so cute, with your squinty eyes. And then one more, the winky tongue out face. You think those are my three favorite? Not my three most used, my three favorite. Okay. All right. So the tongue sticking out smiley face, the normal smiley face, and the, what was the third one? No, the the tongue sticking out winky face, and then the normal smiley face, and then the the teeth so bright big smile face. All right. Well, my favorite emojis. This is hard. I like the um girl face palming emoji. Mm-hmm. I actually use that one a lot. Unfortunately, in reference to myself, I like the emoji that is um like the cute smiley face where like the eyes are squinted closed and it's a little smile with like a little bit little bit of cheek 
blush going on. And I like any of the ones that have to do with, like, music, I guess. Like, the musical notes. Just because that's, that's what I do. I use the eye-rolling emoji a lot, too. Also in reference to myself. Yeah, you do use that one. Um, okay, you have to guess mine now. Well, I have it from a reliable inside source that you frequently use the smiling poop emoji. Okay, there's a reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> this is the reason. I used to live in the same house as like two little boys, like seven and 12-ish, eight and 12. And every time they got a hold of their mom's phone, they would text smiley poops on it all the time. And I just got to really like it because it's just a fun little like disarming, awkward thing. Shout out to those two little boys, by the way. You do not use enough emojis. I'm scrolling through our texting conversations and I can't find anything. I don't know. Maybe I do more on Facebook. Let me check. I think most of the time it's a smiley face because my humor can come across as pretty dry. And if I don't put a smiley face there, people think I'm just being mean. When you do text me emojis, it's a series of emojis. Like the emojis tell a story. <laughs> That's true. You know, you know how some people use like several emojis to convey how strongly they are feeling that emotion. Yes. Like, if you're angry, you're going to send an angry emoji. If you're really angry, you're going to send, like, four or five angry emojis. hmm You send, like, stories. And then I have to sit there and, like, piece together. <laughs> so, there was this one where I texted you, like, this quote that was rude from another Christian podcaster. And you texted me, like, the shocked face, the air coming out of nostrils face. The that's, red- the, that's the huffing angry, like... Yeah. And then you texted me like the red angry face and then the face bomb. So it was like shock, anger, more anger, face bomb. So I I don't know. I think you like the Okay, normal smiley face, laughing crying face, and sunglasses face. Okay, my real top three favorites. I do like the the I'm so not amused face with the straight mouth and the straight eyes, and I'm just like not having it. Or like the squinty, like I'm not quite sure about you. I also really enjoy the the steam coming out of the nostrils one for showing anger. Um, I use the heart one a lot. And then I love the sunglasses one. I am hurt because I never get the heart emoji from you. Okay, here's the thing. Um, I send that to my family. Thanks for listening to another episode of Renew Theology. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so by emailing us at renewtheology at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page, Renew Theology Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram at Renew Theology. And we would really appreciate it if you would leave us a rating on iTunes. Um, We're really encouraged by those ratings and any reviews that we may receive. And so um, if you have a minute and wouldn't mind um, taking a minute to write us a review we'd really appreciate it and we read them if you write me a review i will read it yes we definitely will read it so we'll see you next time on reading theology bye